Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Einsteiner Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening in to Triple R. You have been listening to Radiotherapy before us and after us as Eat It, but for the next hour, we've got you for some science, which hopefully you will enjoy. I have uh, one of my favorite teens on the line. I'm hoping everyone can hear them. Good morning, Stacey. How are you going? Morning, Dr. Shane. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, getting through, we've had some technical issues this morning at Triple R, but we're on top of them now, so that's all good. Uh, Ailey, Dr. Ailey is uh, doing a carpool karaoke by the looks of it. How are you going? I'm well, Dr. Shane. Yep, I'm sitting in my car away for the weekend, so this is this is good being able to zoom in. First show for 2020 for me, so it's exciting. 2021. 2021. I mean, You're still stuck in the past. I am. I am. <laughs> long year i never got over it so. yeah it's disturbing so many people said can't wait for 2021 and i'm like hmm i'm a little worried it might be worse than the last one but we'll see hopefully not hopefully not good morning anu how are you going good morning dr shane how are you i'm good it's a year of science when it comes to space though isn't it? i mean you and i are going to be very excited there's a lot of stuff going on Absolutely. So exciting this year. Um, lots of human space flight and robotic missions coming up. So it has not, um, the pandemic has not put a dent in space flight. Yep. And now we might, uh, this is our news segment. So we might actually start with you. Seems you're, you know, you're bursting out of the screen. I mean, one of the things that people don't know, news one of our relatively new members, but you've never actually been in the studio last year, did you? You didn't get to come in even once. That's right. It's really unfortunate, the circumstances. I'm really looking forward to coming in. Yep, and we'll get to actually meet, um, which will be good. <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> A good thing. Now, tell us, what's happening this week in, um, in the world of science that you have uh, That's right. So I think we did have our, our final show back um, 20th of December, but we never actually got to discuss one of the biggest robotic missions of last year, which was the return sample of the Hayabusa 2. Mm. And now, this little spacecraft was launched back in 2014 by JAXA, which is the Japanese Aerospace, Explora- Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. Got to get my head around that one. And it went to a uh, near-Earth asteroid called Raigu, and it's, um, which is about 900 metres across. Now, it was there to observe and collect and return the samples that it found that on, on the surface, so just beneath the surface of the asteroid itself. It also had on board four rovers, but unfortunately only two of them were actually deployed. Two of them malfunctioned. And they were just left to like, so the spacecraft approached the asteroid and then just let them free fall down to the surface, which is actually kind of cool. Now, these two rovers were so interesting that um, because of the low gravity on the asteroid itself, they weren't actually able to use their wheels. And instead they used um, their little propellant motors to propel themselves forward and do like a series of little hops to get from point A to point B. Isn't that just the cutest thing ever? Now, okay, so you've got this um, <laughs> this craft that's flying in formation almost with this asteroid. And then it sends down like an impactor and it basically shoots at the surface. 
and then sort of like disrupts um, a little bit of, I guess, the regolith. And then the craft itself kind of hangs back a little bit, then goes down, then collects the samples, and then uh, does a few uh, trajectory moves around the asteroid itself, and then comes back to Earth and does a swing by, and then drops the samples off. Now, this is where, you know, this is why, you know, it's so interesting is because these samples were dropped off right in our backyard at Mumera, which is just north of South Australia. And um, the team that came over from Japan to actually collect the samples had to arrive here in mid-pandemic and wow. they had to quarantine for the period, set up the antenna so they were able to track and find these samples that had returned and then, of course, you know, take them back where back to Japan where they'll be um, undergoing vacuum and nitrogen analysis. Now, the spacecraft itself is actually still um, up up in space and it's about to intercept two other asteroids in 2026 and 2031 before it comes back and does a few swing by fire as well so it's, cool it's still in action lots of bang for your buck <laughs> yep and it's still going. I love it. It's great stuff. It's a, it's a good story, and we'll keep watching it because as the data starts coming in from that asteroid, and I love the idea of something just 900 meters across having enough gravity to pull those little guys down, and it's just, yeah, it's a fabulous story. Thanks so much, Anu. We'll keep keep watching that one. It's a, it's a really good, uh, interesting, it piece, is very of, interesting. piece of science. Thank cool you, stuff. Stacy, what have you got for us? Oh, well, um, Dr. Shane, I've just returned from a very lovely holiday in Tasmania. Um, oh. So this, yeah, so I'm very refreshed. Uh, it's always lovely going down there. There's yep. um, an abundance of wildlife. We had lots of nice close encounters with wallabies and wombats. And, in fact, um, while I was over there, I, I didn't realise that there's actually three subspecies of the common wombat, mm. um, one of which is unique to Tasmania. And this species um, is a fair bit smaller than the wombats found on mainland Australia, and their fur is paler in colour, so they're quite cute. But the one thing that they do have in common um, with the other wombats on the mainland is the shape of their poo. Oh, so yes. Men, yes, the old, <laughs> the old cubic wombat poo story. So, yeah. um so wombats are the only animal in the world uh, known to have uh, be able to form this cubic-shaped poo. And until recently, it's been a bit of a mystery as to how these unique droppings are formed. Um, and the researchers from University of Tasmania had previously discovered a couple of years ago um, that regions of the wombat's intestine vary in elasticity, and that's thought to have um, caused this characteristic shape. And so these same researchers published new material, new work this week um, in a journal called Soft Matter, which is very appropriate. I thought that was a joke, but um, it's indeed a credible scientific journal, Soft Matter. Um, and what they did is they <laughs> dissected some wombats that had died from other causes, and they found regions of the intestine that are four times stiffer and twice as thick than other remaining parts. So some parts are quite normal uh, and others are really stiff and really thick. And it's these thick regions, um, they're quite like, you know, a stiff rubber band and they contract really quickly. And it's this um, a quick, stiff contractions of these parts coupled with the relatively slower and um, slower contractions and softer regions of other um, uh, parts of the intestine that shape those characteristic hard corners of the cube. And the formation really, yeah, it's really odd. No, normally humans and other animals have really consistent um, smooth muscle um, contractions across the whole intestine. But, yeah, this, this variation is quite unique to wombats. And the formation of the cube only occurs in the latter part of the intestine. Um, so um, it takes, like for humans, it takes about 
a day or two for food to pass through um, the digestive tract. But for wombats, um, the digestive system is quite complex and it takes up to 18 days. And so what the system does is really squeeze out all the nutrients and quite a lot of the water. So by the time it gets to that latter part of the digestive tract, um, where those where that shaping of the cube happens, the, the faeces is quite dry and very neat, neatly shaped into the cube and then it doesn't get squished back into a, a tube, sort of tubular shape hmm. through the point of exit, shall I say. Um, so, yeah, it's quite quite interesting and novel. And then the researchers sort of um, investigated the theory further and they developed a mathematical model and essentially by simulating uh, lots of contractions with varying alternating stiff and soft regions, they showed that increasing that stiffness ratio shift, um, yielded shapes that are more square and squat. Yep. So um, why they produce poo like this, it's not entirely clear, but, um, you know, being nocturnal, they've got quite poor eyesight um, and they've got a very strong sense of smell. So they do use their um, scat to communicate with other animals and apparently they, um, they place their poo in prominent places near their home base. Um, and on top of logs and on top of rocks and things like that. So I, yeah. I guess being flat-sided, it's less likely to roll away. Well, that, that's the theory anyway. Yeah. Oh, you can build a whole house, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just think it's, um, so yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the reasoning is pretty simple to me. It's to tell everyone in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it's not just a platypus. We've got this as well and you've got nothing. Like we've got it. the most that's amazing right. animals, yeah. So, That's yeah. right. I'm, I'm very pleased that the Australian researchers were able to square off this mystery. Oh, my God, there it is. <laughs> Sorry, folks, <laughs> we know it's early. Uh, we can't help those puns. Uh, Ailey, what have you got for us? Uh, Shane, I've, I, I don't know if I can top wombat poo. I mean, who can top wombat poo at first thing on a Sunday morning? But um, Push look, through, push I'm, through. You'll be okay. That's right. I thought I'd start with a little bit of a an inspirational story for budding scientists out there um, for 2021 um, because this is a story of a, a, a physicist uh, at Georgia Tech. Her, her name is uh, Elisabetta Matsumoto and she's done something really cool with her physics and her hobby and she's combined the two and I'll explain in a second. But first of all, I wanted to kind of ask everybody and, and not for the listeners to think about this out there because I don't know about you guys, but when I was in high school, you know, even, even unfortunately, some of my maths teachers would always say, oh, don't worry, you'll never use maths after high school or this type of maths, you know. In particular for me, it was you never use geometry after high school. Well, I showed them. But anyway, um, the point is that people hear that all the time, right? But we kind of don't realise that things like geometry are fundamental to some really basic and sometimes mundane things and they can actually be used to do quite extraordinary stuff. So getting back to um, Dr Matsumoto, um, she's a physicist at Georgia Tech, as I said, in the United States, but she's also a very keen knitter and she has been a keen knitter since she was very young. I think she said she started at six. And she knows lots of different stitches and, you know, bit beyond my knit one, pearl one that I tried for a weekend last year. Um, but some quite complex stitches as well. And apparently when she was um, doing one of these stitches, you know, a really complex one that she'd never seen before, it got her thinking about the knot and got her thinking about um, how the knots tie the yarn together to make the material uh, move in certain ways or have a certain structure. And she basically noticed that by varying different stitch combinations, 
in her knitting that it really altered the elasticity, the mechanical strength and the structure of the material that she was working with. And she thought, oh, I wonder if we can use that elsewhere. And so now she's basically uh, switched from being a uh, theoretical physicist to a mathematician and she's working with something called knot theory, which basically is a branch of geometry that kind of looks at um, basically kind of how knots work. I know that sounds silly, but it's really used in a lot of um, biological stuff. It's used to, to understand how kind of uh, DNA uh, ravels together and, and unravels and things like that. So it's a really useful branch of geometry. But what she's doing now is actually looking at how combinations of stitches and combinations of knots and different types of knots can be used to change these aspects of a material. So it's elasticity, it's strength, it's structure, things like that. Um, and she wants to catalogue those to really give us an idea of um yeah, of, of the different stitch combinations and what they can do. So, for example, if you do a knit one, purl one, apparently they always curl at the edges. And if you do some other combination of stitch, you can make it flat, for example. You do another combination of stitch and you can make the material that you come up with uh, stretch twice as long as it was originally, whereas if you use the original yarn, you don't get that stretch, mm. right? And so what she wants to do is catalogue all these combinations of, of stitches. Um, basically, her idea is to use that then, you know, you could have applications for kind of 3D printed materials. You could have applications in um, kind of medical stuff. So, you know, when you're kind of doing um, skin grafts and stuff like that and, and, and synthetic structures to help, um, yeah, to help with that kind of stuff in medicine and all sorts of applications. And I just thought it's such a neat, mm. nice example of how to combine your interests with some really, really cool science. Yeah. No, that's good stuff. And certainly um, we don't think about fabrics as having a, a variety of combinations of stitches in them inherently. Usually they're fairly consistent. And if you can add a lot, a lot of functionality by doing that and different functionality in different locations in a fabric and material, that sounds pretty pretty exciting. And yeah, I can imagine the mass being pretty heavy around some of that, actually. I've seen oh, some absolutely. of that. And it's, yeah. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But it needs really smart people like that to work yeah. it out. And, yeah, uh, I just excellent. think it's so cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, team. Uh, it's great talking to you and getting the news, folks. We're going to take a break uh, and then we'll be back in just a, a very brief moment, actually, to talk about uh, uh, some really interesting work with vitamin C infusions, which um, will blow you away. So hang in there. We'll be back in just a sec. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We had a very short break there for you, and we're back now with Dr. Yagisha Lankadeva. He is the laboratory head in the Translational Cardiovascular and Renal Research Group in the National Heart Foundation Future Research Fellow, based at the University of Melbourne and also at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Yagish, did I miss anything? You've got so many accolades. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. No, I think you covered everything. Now, we, um, we've interviewed you before on a different topic, but today what we wanted to talk about was some of this new work you've been doing with regards to responding to patients with sepsis. So first of all, just give us a bit of a, a quick rundown of what, what do you mean by sepsis and, and where do you most likely see that in the sort of clinical environment? Um, in terms of the clinical environment, I mean, once patients are diagnosed with sepsis, this is a big problem in intensive care units. Um, so what we term as a patient be having sepsis is when uh, a patient reacts very adversely to an underlying infection. 
and the and there is an overwhelming immune response from our body to this underlying infection that can in turn cause damage to our tissues and organ systems that mm-hmm. can then lead to multi-organ failure and death. Mm. It's currently the biggest killer in intensive care units worldwide. Do, do we know what kind of in, like initiates it? Like, I mean, why does one person end up with this and another person does doesn't when you're basically doing the same sort of surgery, for example, on, on both people? Um, so surgery is just one cause of it. I mean, there, there could be other causes such as like a pneumonia, like an infection in the lungs can lead to sepsis or abdominal mm. infection can lead to sepsis. A urinary tract infection can lead to sepsis. So I guess... That is what's concerning about it. Sepsis doesn't discriminate between sometimes age or comorbidities. But if you were to talk about high-risk patients, I mean, we see this being most prevalent in newborns who, uh, whose immune system isn't uh, quite developed as of yet, and also in the older population where patients have comorbidities such mm. as diabetes or uh, liver dysfunction, kidney disease, uh, cancer patients, burn victims. Um, these are common comorbidities. Anything that has compromised your underlying immune system, you're more at higher risk of uh, infection getting out of control. Right. And I'm assuming um, some sort of high-dose antibiotics is the standard treatment. Is that is that the go? And are we struggling with that at this point? Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head with both of those statements. Um, antibiotics is the mainstay, um, um, followed by other measures such as fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy to maintain hemodynamics. Uh, but as you said, you know, antibiotic resistance is a major problem in the world. And because of this, the annual incidence of the cases of sepsis continues to increase. And I guess in 2017, which is the last epidemiological study that was published in Lancet, I think the global incidence of sepsis has risen to 49 million with over 11 million people dying from it. Well, Per year, 11 million people dying per year. I mean, that's an extraordinary statistic. How, how does that compare to other similar, you know, problems? Like, is that like really large or is that consistent with what you would expect with that sort of patient group? This is basically the largest killer in hospital settings worldwide. Wow. So I think this accounts to 40 to 50% of all in-hospital mortalities. And even in the, in the population of sepsis, the death rate is can range between 20 to 40%, which I think is an alarmingly high death rate considering the modern advances in medical medical care treatments. Mm. So this is a big problem and uh, therapies, new effective therapies are urgently needed. Yeah. Now, you've been working on one of those in particular that involves vitamin C and we're not, um, we're not talking about a couple of... Uh, you know, brockers or something here. So to use a brand name, but I was trying to get you know, a couple of vitamin T- C tablets here. You've been working on this with very high dose vitamin C injections. Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, so I think calling it vitamin C can also be a little misleading. Uh, people mm. automatically associate itself with oranges. So if you were to do an equivalent dose of oranges, <laughs> about two thousand five hundred oranges worth of vitamin C. Yeah. Right. And, and, and <laughs> there's no way if you ingest it that it could bring about those benefits because that will saturate the transporters in your digestive tract. So you can't really ingest this amount. It has to be given intravenously. And when you think about vitamin C, it is actually ascorbic acid. So it's not really ascorbic acid that we are infusing at these high doses because if you were to do that, that would actually drop your blood pH and increase your blood acidity, which is, again, not very good in intensive care settings. So what we've done is we're using a different um, regime of vitamin C. This is a sodium ascorbate. So it's basically the sodium salt of ascorbic acid. So it's taken away the acidic component. So you can give it at high doses without the unwanted side effects of increasing blood acidity. Hmm. And, I mean, why, 
I suppose my, my initial question there would be, why did you think of trying vitamin C? I mean, everyone's going antibiotics, you know, more, bigger, tougher, you know, trying to create new ones. And all of a sudden, you guess you've said, no, 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 no. Look, you know, we've seen these oranges. They're good. Um, we're going we're to go with a form of vitamin C to attack this. What, what made you think of trying this? Uh, the main property of vitamin C that I was primarily interested in was its antioxidant properties. And um, I think I've spoken to you um, about maybe three, four years back about us trying to really elucidate the mechanisms driving organ dysfunction mm. in sepsis. And ma- main reason why patients with sepsis develop organ failure is because sepsis is characterized by life-threatening falls in blood pressure. And when that happens in the hospital, they're given aggressive fluids resuscitation and coupled with these other drugs like NOAA drilling to restore blood pressure, but patients lose sensitivity to these drugs. So they have these life-threatening falls in blood pressure that compromise blood supply to vital organs and these organs go into failure and patients die. So what we want to kind of find was a way to really reverse this. And antioxidants has been the field that I've been kind of working on for the last four to five years. We have been using synthetic antioxidants and what I found was that when I give these synthetic antioxidants directly into an organ in experimental settings, we can see quite profound benefits. But when we give it systemically to the to, through a vein, it has off-target adverse effects. So I was really kind of at this conundrum where I could see benefits, but obviously you need to come up with a global treatment. Mm-hmm. So vitamin C is a naturally occurring antioxidant. So I think our body is naturally programmed to be able to um, break it down and ex- excrete the um, unwanted um, un- unwanted amounts. So when we tried vitamin C at the higher doses, we actually saw benefits towards reversing organ dysfunction without the adverse side effects seen with the synthetic antioxidants. Mm. So, I mean, this is obviously having a profound effect where people have sepsis and you give them this treatment, which is fantastic. Why is there a reason why we wouldn't give this treatment sort of prophylactically when people are having, you know, especially in the hospital setting where they're having major surgery or whatever, and they're at high risk, If especially I, I can imagine there are some people who are in a high risk group of getting sepsis depending on their comorbidities. Why would we not give this sort of prophylactically beforehand? Is that something that would be doable, do you think? No, I think that's a good question. And I think it all comes back to evidence-based medicine, isn't it? Mm. I mean, until someone provides the evidence in a properly controlled setting, elucidates its mechanism of action, conduct proper randomized control trials, or, and you know, investigate the mechanism of action, really not going to go into standard of care treatment. And uh, yep. I think, I mean, there has been previous trials that have tried vitamin C at much lower doses than what we are suggesting. Um, they're talking about six grams per day or up to 14 grams per day. And these trials have really been unsuccessful to date. Okay. So I think this is why there's been enthusiasm but there's also been disappointments mm. so i guess most of these things arise from not conducting sufficient um systematic dose finding studies and elucidating its mechanism elucidating the timing of the treatment i think all these things have to be done for it to kind of get into mainstream treatment yeah now um recently i understand you've also not just dealt with sepsis on this or i guess this is related but there there's been a a COVID case where you've actually applied this same treatment where and we're not talking about someone with a mild scenario here but someone who's in a very critical condition and there were some outcomes of that tell, tell us about that yeah so this was a really exciting period of this program, research program i mean once we we were progressing with these uh, animal studies at the flooring uh, we, there was a patient um, with uh, COVID-19, with a very severe case of COVID-19 in the ICU that were not 
responding to standard care treatment. So this patient had ac acute respiratory distress syndrome or lung dysfunction. He had acute kidney injury, kidney function was very low, and he was on very high doses of noadrenaline uh, to rest, like maintain his blood pressure. And he uh, it was it was a time where he wasn't sure whether the patient was going to make it. But mm. because of a long-standing collaborator at Austin Health, Professor Ronaldo Belomo, who was the director there, was aware of the sheep studies that were going on, he managed to use this mega dose of vitamin C to this patient as compassionate use. And we saw very similar benefits to what we saw in our animal studies, where the patient's lung function improved in the sense that the supplemental oxygen uh, was not like had to be reduced, but arterial oxygen levels went up, kidney function improved quite prominently, body temperature reduced, and the patient didn't need any more no vasopressors to maintain his blood pressure. So that was quite promising. Uh, during that period. Mm. Now, you mentioned that this is um, under the sort of guise of uh, compassionate use. So that's where you, you haven't gone all through all the necessary trials for it to normally be used in humans. I mean, if you look at the situation in the UK, the US, other countries around the world, I mean, these these treatments presumably would be very beneficial. I mean, where is that going? Is, uh, you know, is there some urgency to that extending beyond what you've done here in Melbourne? Is that being picked up internationally? Yeah, so because we, I mean, you know, luckily Australia was man managed to get on top of the COVID cases. Mm. We didn't really get any more severe cases in the Austin ICU. Um, so what we did do, manage to do was to um, uh, initiate a randomized controlled trial to try this mega dose vitamin C in patients with sepsis. So this is going to be the first pilot study that's going to try the vitamin C at these high doses. So that's that's kind of going, and we, we you know we are in the middle of that trial. So that's promising in that way. We are about to start another multi-center trial um, with uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital with uh, Associate Professor Adam Dean and uh, Monash Health with Professor Shaya Shahabi to actually try these doses in the patients there. In terms of COVID, um, we haven't managed to really initiate a trial overseas, but there has been interest from Colombia actually to trial these doses in a randomized clinical trial that country. So mm. we, I guess we are working on that space. But again, like I said, because of the contradicting evidence with vitamin C, until the evidence really comes out from this first pilot study, it's really difficult to really convince people to really yeah. get on board sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of those things though where we know with so many other medications that there are certain ranges of dose that are basically worthless you know they don't harm us but they don't do anything so it's not overly surprising that you've you know had to find a, a sweet spot here that that works really well i mean i just think it's incredibly exciting that you know we're not continuing to plow down this same failed antibiotic path that you know we can see the train coming at us in the future of this being just you know a really big problem and and solutions like this uh are not i mean correct me if i'm wrong here but they're not related to the antibiotic pathway. So you know, it's, com it's a completely different solution that won't have the same issues. Is that right? No, I guess I guess you're right there because I think one of the good things about vitamin C is that it has, apart from the antioxidant effects, it has anti-inflammatory effects. It mm. is also a very powerful immunomodulator. And there is rationale for its use in sepsis because the majority of the patients in the clinical trials where they measured plasma vitamin C levels, they have severely depleted vitamin C levels yep. uh, and similar to the levels you would find in scurvy for that matter. Mm. And it's compounded by the fact that the humans can't lack the enzyme to naturally synthesize vitamin C. So, mm. I mean, I think, I think there is a strong rationale to give vitamin C. And I think, like you said, finding that optimal dose to really bring about the optimal benefits is where, where we think the key lies.
Yeah. Well, look, Yagesh, it's um, really interesting work. Uh, congratulations on, on getting these results and especially helping that um, particular patient who was in the ICU. It must be thrilling to have those sorts of outcomes from your research and see them, you know, happening in the real world in the way that's effective and, and you're tackling a problem that is immense and when you hear those numbers like 20 to 40 percent deaths in in hospitals with um, sepsis that's you know that's really quite frightening um, I, I guess the important message to everyone out there is the number you gave earlier it's about 2,500 oranges you obviously can't consume those so this has to be specially put together um, is often the case with these sorts of medications but uh, well done again Yugesh and thanks for being our guest again on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you so much for having me again, Shane. It was lovely talking to you. It was great to talk to you. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3 Triple R. It's a science program if you haven't worked it out. And in our virtual studio now is Dr. Jessica Stander. She is, well, she's been working in South Africa for quite a while and she is just about to move to the University of Melbourne in February. Hello, Jessica. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure having you on. And we've been talking about this interview uh, since last year, so it took us a little while to get there, but we're finally here. Now, you're a, I'm going to ask you to explain exactly what this means, but you're a musculoskeletal physio, physiotherapist. How is, I mean, how is that specific to physiotherapy? Like, how is it different? So if you think about most visits that we have towards a private practice, you will usually go and see your physio for lower back pain, for mm -hmm. a bit of neck pain. Perhaps you had an injury on the soccer field, you know, and you hurt your knees. Um, so musculoskeletal physiotherapy is really looking at the body holistically, but specifically looking at the musculoskeletal system and never forgetting the neurological system with that. Yeah. I suppose part of it is this idea that sometimes we get pain in different parts of our body that we don't expect. I mean, I know on occasion, like it's funny, I, I, I did some damage to a calf muscle not that long ago. And um, it was funny, my, my physio, who's fantastic, said, oh, you know, we call that one of the older injuries. I'm like, older? And I looked at her, I thought, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah, you know, athletes get them when they were like 25. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, sounds, that sounds like me. <laughs> um, but one of the things I noticed was, you know, I, I, I repaired that muscle but then I had a sore knee for a few weeks. You know, it was sort of like, and and my other leg was a bit like this this sort of movement of pain around the body. I mean, you must see a, a lot of that in that sort of practice. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things that we have to look out for is we call it the issues in the tissues. So, for example, hmm. something in in your case where it might have been an injury that happened a very long time ago, your body still reacts to that little injury by you know, walking slightly differently to what you're used to. So all of a sudden, your body has to compensate in ways that it wasn't used to. And then we get little issues in other areas. But having said that as well, we also have where those tissues might have recovered already. Yep. And now we're dealing with um, um, an issue that's related more to our perception of that pain in that area instead of really having those issues in the tissues. Yeah, I'm always exploring things on my phone, you know, on the, the apps and the health app and so forth. And, and I noticed the other day you can look at your, your walking gait and, and it, came, it come, gives you an asymmetry. And I, and I had this asymmetry. I was thinking, what does this mean? Do I need to worry yeah. about this? I mean, how much can we rely on that sort of technology or that we need to be going? Is it one of those things where we need to say, no, hang, hang on, this is like, you know, doing all your medical stuff on Google. Um, you really need to go into a proper gait lab with a physiotherapist and get examined if you're worried is that is that where we should be sort of heading 
Absolutely. Remember, everyone's body, we all have the, the same muscles, the same bones, but our bodies function very differently. Mm. So we have to take into consideration what is your normal? Is your normal causing you any discomfort? Yep. So we can have an abnormal gait, but there can be absolutely nothing wrong with us. And I think that's something that we're realizing more and more with the research coming out now is just because you sit slightly slouched in front of your computer doesn't mean that that will translate into pain. And I think that's a really important message that now we're getting. Our observational skills as physios um, and other allied healthcare, we look at things in relation to the person's function, not just I'm having a bit of a limp. You know, mm. a lot of people have limps without any issues. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of when you take some of this new knowledge, in particular, you know, the new research knowledge around um, some of this physiotherapy work and, and our understanding of the body, it then has to be translated into the clinical space. And, and this is what you've been working on, this idea of how to best train people. I and mean, tell, tell us about your work there because it, it seems, I, I suppose, some people, oh, you know, you go to a few lectures and you learn a few things, but but it's a lot more complicated than that to make sure it, it sticks and it, you know, it works, yeah? Absolutely. So Benjamin Franklin has a saying that says, tell me and I forget. Teach me and I may remember. Involve me and I learn. Yep. And I think our biggest thing is we trained as physiotherapists. I myself trained in South Africa, my undergraduate degree. And then somehow... There seems to be a bit of a gap between um, that stage and learning the rest of the time. So my research focuses specifically on training South African physios how to use research evidence better in their practice. Now, this might seem to, to Australians and specifically Australian researchers as an obvious thing. What my research found was that our physios in South Africa had trouble just Googling for what we use as clinical practice guidelines, which is recommendations for best mm. approach for a specific condition. So they literally didn't know which keywords were the best ones to use so that I can get the best, best outcome at the end of the day. And then you have the issue, Dr. Shane, and I'm sure you know this very well, that you get research online and you look at these numbers and the tables and you're like, well, what does this mean for my patient that just walked in with mm. severe lower back pain? So we looked at teaching these physios how to best approach their clinical decision-making, taking these research evidence into, into consideration. Yeah, look, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there must also be a threshold where you, you have to say, okay, there are certain pieces of research coming in. It doesn't seem to be completely squared away yet which direction I should go in. And you just mentioned the one about slouching in front of your computers and so forth. So there must be a point at which I say, okay, now I'm going to use this in my clinical practice. And working out when, when to do that must be very tricky, regardless of where you're working, actually. Absolutely. I think there's um, two terms which are taking consideration here. It's evidence-based practice mm -hmm. versus evidence-informed practice. Yep. As a physiotherapist, you have years or perhaps one year of experience in, um, in training. So your, it depends on how much experience you have, how you're going to approach your different patients. Now we also have our patient preferences and we have our research evidence, and that forms a little triangle. So now we have to look at what is the best approach for my patient according to that hierarchy. So the research evidence says, please go and be active when you have, for example, lower back pain. 
But my patient says, oh, no, I've tried that before. That, does, that doesn't work for me specifically. So in my experience as a clinician, do I then say, well, this is still the best approach or let's see if we can change that up, for example, for you. So we take best available evidence and we apply it in the context of our patient and we make the decisions with our patient, not for our patient. Yeah, I think um, what you're describing there sounds like patient-centered care, which is a, it's like a unicorn in some places. I think Jessica in a lot of fields and uh, you know, bravo for having a crack at it because I think if you can get a lot more people to really focus on, especially what patients are telling clinicians as well, because that is the sort of information that often makes a difference between a successful response from a clinician and an unsuccessful one. And when you know clinicians are not all-knowing um you know they don't have all the information and some of that comes from research some of it comes from their training and some of it comes from the patients and their family uh, family and friends so that can be a, a key thing uh, have you already arrived in melbourne or are you transiting soon no i actually um we've been in melbourne for the last three years oh, wow. so i finished my my <laughs> phd while i was um i was here which was um, a bit of a challenge but it also brought in a lot of the perceptions from australia yep. you know so um it really helped me to understand not only what i found in south africa but how does it translate to the world i'm stepping into now so um yep. it's been really exciting that's fantastic well dr jessica sanders thank you so much for being a guest today on einstein and gogo and good luck with your new position at the University of Melbourne. I know a lot of the people there in physio, they're, they're an absolute delightful group and I'm sure you have a good time and, and keep up this good work. It's, it's really important to, to make sure that we use all the knowledge that we have to care for our patients in a specific way. So thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our final guest uh, in just a few moments. That will be the head of the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the line now, we have Professor Nancy Baxter. She is the head of the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Nancy. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Shane? I'm good. Now, you're, you relatively recently arrived just before the, the pandemic hit, uh, didn't you? When, when did you get in Melbourne? So I moved for the adventure, Shane, and I arrived here on February 8th. So, oh, wow. uh, so it, it has been an adventure, but not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I assume you've met a few people physically uh, since you've been here, but probably not as many as you were hoping. Uh, no, no, it's been, um, it's been a really, uh, I mean, it, it's been good to be here because uh, we have been relatively safe. And although we went through, you know, some hard yards um, during lockdown in Melbourne, uh, I guess it gave us a little bit of a taste of what the rest of the world is going through. But still, I mean, it's it's remarkable how well we've controlled things here. Yeah. And, and where did you um, originate from before coming here? Yeah, I was in Toronto. So I was right. at University of Toronto. Yeah. I mean, what's your view of the sort of Canadian situation that seems to be somewhat out of control there as well? Um, fairly bad. Probably not as bad as the United States, but, but pretty bad. Yeah. Well, so like, um, like Australia, um, you know, a significant part of healthcare and certainly public policy are set by individual provinces. Mm. So what you see in, in Canada is, um, you know, a great deal of difference across the provinces in terms of how well things have been controlled. Um, things certainly aren't aren't great in Canada, but they're much better, say, in British Columbia than they are in Ontario and Quebec. Um, Ontario, particularly now, um, is uh, is not doing well, um, and pretty soon it's going to be clear they're not even going to be doing as well as the United States once the United States really gets up and vaccinated and starts to have some um, meaningful uh, national public policy put in place. 
Um, they just, uh, you know, they did half measures in terms of lockdown um, and uh, just aren't, aren't from a governance standpoint. It, it's just a, just not an adequate situation right now. Yeah. It seems as though everywhere where there's been the, as you say, those sort of half measures around lockdown, uh, the, the results aren't. Aren't one, you know, the, I think the idea of flattening the curve is not really working out as people would have hoped in terms of containment and there's these continual increases that are just problematic, whereas even though I don't think it was our original intention, the, the complete eradication scenario here that we're looking at now is is really starting to pay off. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there are several things about um, COVID-19 in terms of its ability to spread um, in asymptomatic people mm. um, that makes it very hard to contain, even if you've, you've uh, flattened the curve, makes it very hard for the curve not just to go up again as soon as you've, uh, you relax things. So you really have to get it down to a very, very low level uh, or else it's just going to rebound just yeah. because it's so infectious and you don't even know you have it and you're spreading it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you and I have been interacting a bit on Twitter over this, uh, as you know, many of us have, but the, the, the vaccination scenario is an interesting one because there seem to be a lot of options coming through on the table. And I think we need to be really clear to everyone listening that these are, you know, these are relatively new vaccines um, and they all come with, with certain risks, as all vaccines do. But those risks relative to COVID itself are, you know, so so minimal by comparison that, you know, in, in a sense, it's frustrating when we have to have those conversations. But we have to be really clear in the communication around that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, one thing is it's quite interesting in terms of um, different jurisdictions, how they see the COVID, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines and mm. what they're protecting them from. So, you know, in places like United States, it's, it's clear the the um, uh, impact on health that COVID-19 has. So obviously getting the vaccine out there is going to protect lives uh, of people uh, and their health. Whereas in Australia, it's more we want the vaccine out there because we ne never want to go down in into lockdown again. You know, so that's what we're mm. thinking about preventing because that's our experience of COVID-19, right? Hasn't, you know, there certainly was um, was real um, suffering and death in, in Australia too, but not, not to the same degree. We haven't all been touched by it. I mean, everyone in the United States has been touched by it. Over one in, over one in a thousand, I think it's now one in 600 or some some absolutely bananas number like that, people have died of mm. the disease in the United States. So there's no one who's not touched by it there in terms of the, the real impact on health. Here, it's it's more, I think it's, we don't want to go into lockdown. We want to go back to our normal lives. So we want the vaccine. So it's kind of interesting and it's a different kind of equation for us here than elsewhere. But obviously, you know, if we opened up and didn't have the vaccine, it, it would be exactly like they are here. I mean, yeah. we would be suffering the same thing. Yeah, it's funny because I know in um, you know writing some materials on this and so forth with people like Margie Danton from the Children's and others, um, you know, from RMIT and UNSW, that you know many of the things we considered was this idea that you know in many regards in Australia this is comparable to other vaccines we have where we don't see diseases of those type on the street and it's and it's it's actually quite a hard push when when people aren't seeing people suffering and dying from these things day to day, it can be a hard push to to get people to vaccinate because they think they're safe and the reality is you're only safe from those diseases because so many people are vaccinated you know throughout yeah decades and, and i mean you, you you always have these people nipping at your heels right mm. the anti-vaxxers saying you know there is no risk of the disease and the risk is all about the vaccine and it, it's harder to counter when it's not you know running rampant in your society i mean clearly i don't want that to happen in australia but it is a 
bit of an easier sell. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, what we need to really be doing, and especially, uh, you know, call on the media, the mainstream media to be doing this is to properly, you know, report on just how, you know, how important this is and not, not sort of nitpick every little piece of information that comes out you know we saw that this week with you know germany has some concerns with regards to the efficacy of the vaccine in people over 65 but they're not saying it's dangerous to people over 65 they're saying well you know we we haven't seen any data that shows how effective it is and it's you know it's it's challenging if that's reported in the wrong way It, it is challenging although you know despite the approach of the government in terms of communication uh, I still think that there's opportunity to change tack. Mm. And so I, I don't think it's irresponsible to be reporting reality uh, in the hopes of of making sure the government is fully considering what the options are and what the implications are. You know, the AstraZeneca vaccine um, just didn't recruit enough people over 65 to actually know mm. You know, I think there was one outcome in the group of people that were over 65. And, you know, it would be one thing if that wasn't the group that was hardest hit by COVID, but that is the group that's hardest hit by COVID. So saying you're going to roll out a vaccine where we really don't know how effective it's going to be in the group that's hardest hit, to me, is um, is is problematic, particularly when there are other options. Um, so I think that that's the thing, right? Mm. If we had no other option, then uh, for sure, like, go for it. But uh, we have other options. Um, I think the other thing about AstraZeneca is um, we hopefully will have the results from the U.S. trial soon. So, um, you know, a, a number of questions will be answered. Anyone who's looked at the original AstraZeneca trial, it's a bit of an odd one. It's a gong show, actually. Um, so we really need the data from the U.S. and it, it's forthcoming. So that's the good news. So I think that before we actually have the full evaluation of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, in Australia. There'll be data from the U.S. So that'll just put us in a much better position to know exactly what we're getting into. Yeah, yeah. And the more information we have, the better. I think you're absolutely right about that. And being able to... Particularly in light of Novavax, right? So, you know, we had an incredible day for vaccines yesterday. So, you know, J&J information, so single-dose vaccine, effective. Uh, And uh, we also had the Novavax, which seems to have effectiveness that's in the range of uh, the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer. And Australia has access to Novavax. Mm. So, you know... I guess it's hard to know what's really going on behind closed doors in terms of governmental meetings, but that really needs to be something that's considered because, you know, unlike the mRNA vaccines, we have the ability to vaccinate every adult in Australia yep. with uh, uh, with Novavax. So, yep. you know, it's something that we need to think about. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And as, as with all things COVID, we need to be able to change tact in relatively short timeframes. And this is the one thing we've learned over the last year is that if we try and fix ourselves into one path, we will we will not do well. We need to be able to move quickly and, and respond as data comes in. Yeah, and having three vaccines, you know, so if AstraZeneca is great for people under 55, mm. then that's fantastic. Right. You can give it to people under 55 and reserve Novavax and Pfizer for people over that age group. So I, certainly I think having more options is better than having fewer options. Um, I mean, what's now the, now, amazingly, amazingly enough, now we're talking about vaccines as being first generation. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. You know, it's incredible. Some of these vaccines haven't even been available for distribution, and now they're being called first generations. And so another thing that we have to think about, um, and this, again, is really evolving, are which are the vaccines that um, 
are most likely to be amenable to developing boosters. So developing new vaccines against um, emerging variants. Um, you know, we've seen that uh, for the Novavax and for the J&J &J product, both do not seem to be as effective for the South African variant. There's also a new variant in Brazil that people seem to be getting COVID again. So that mm. indicates that there's a higher likelihood that the vaccines won't be as effective. Um, the mRNA vaccines, the implications from what the company is saying is there's they're still effective but not as effective against these new variants so it seems pretty clear you know i think there are two things that are clear from that one is that we're going to need boosters and that we need a vaccine platform that allows that and so again that's an issue with the astrazeneca vaccine with the chimp adenovirus that's that's used as the platform um that uh, that that may not be as amenable to vaccine as, uh, to a booster as say uh, a J&J &J product, a mRNA product, or, or a Novavax product. So that's, I think, something important to consider. The other thing about these variants that I think is really important that we all consider, you know, right now it's this hunger games. Uh, every country is against every country in terms of trying to get the vaccine. We see the European Union mm. may well block other countries uh, from getting um, supplies from Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Um, the U.S., with their ramp-up of their vaccine strategy, has affected um, access for Canadians. So, you know, it's this, this pitting country against country. But certainly, you know, what, what these new variants are showing us is that if it's out of control everywhere, it's going to be out of control anywhere. It's going to be out of control everywhere, everywhere. in the not-too-distant yep. future. So we either control it everywhere or we don't control it anywhere. Yeah. And so I think that we, we really need to think as a global community about how we get everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible because yeah. otherwise we're not going to control the situation. Yeah, Nancy, that's a good message to finish on. I think this idea that we really do need to, to act collectively in any countries that are having a, a nationalistic approach and, and sort of not just closing their borders in terms of transfer of people, but also in terms of vaccines and so forth, are not going to help over the long term. Um, Professor Nancy Baxter, thanks so much for being uh, a guest today on Einstein and GoGo. Good luck with the, the ongoing work and hopefully um, things will return to normal very soon there at the university for you as well well hopefully we'll talk again soon about something non-covid related <laughs> indeed we'll get you we'll talk to talk all about your other your clinical work as well it'll be great thanks nancy all right bye, -bye. bye shane Folks, uh, that was Professor Nancy Baxter, who is the head of the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Now, we have had a pretty big show, a lot of medical stuff on this show today. Um, we're going to have to uh, compensate in the coming weeks with some non-medical uh, guests and materials, which I promise we will do. In fact, we're going to have a whole month coming up where we're going to do a, every week, we will do a different uh, guest who's doing research in Antarctica, which is pretty exciting. And we're very thankful for, um, for all those guests who will be Coming in, we'll give you more details in the coming weeks about that. We'll also have Amy Shearer title back, who's written some amazing books. Who's a, she's a historian who works um, specifically in things like the Apollo area and pre-Apollo area of spaceflight and so forth, and has been on the show a couple of times before. And Kara Santamaria will also be joining us, who does one of the amazing podcasts in the US in science called Talk Nerdy, which I would highly recommend. And Kerry's been doing a PhD and working as a clinician in the US, so that's going to be an interesting discussion as well. But for today, that is it for Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And in a moment, I'm going to hand you over to the fabulous team from Eat It to talk up a storm with regards to food and all things uh, great that you can consume and cook and, and so forth. So hang in there. Remember, you're listening to Triple R. Uh, we love broadcasting and we love the fact that you listen to us on the Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and GoGo. 
a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.